amazed by your grace. We thank you tonight for the privilege of knowing you, the privilege of being able to have a relationship with you, your commitment to that relationship. And we acknowledge the great price that was paid to make it so. And we thank you for our Savior tonight. We thank you, Lord, that we are your workmanship and you are conforming us into the image of Christ. And we recognize how you use your word to do that. And we pray, Lord, that you would bless our time in your word this evening to help us understand your ways more about you and what you're like, more like more about knowing what Jesus is like and how he handles the situations in life that we want to handle in exactly the same way. And we give you praise also tonight that you are a God who is a perfect match for our every need. And we thank you, Lord, for how lavishly you pour out from your resources upon our need. We are so grateful to you this evening. And we give you praise and we give you thanks. We trust that we've given you all of the honor and the glory that you're due here tonight. And we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Good evening. Please be seated. Glad you're here tonight. Job chapter 4 this evening in our journey through the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. And if you just wave to them, they'll get one into your hands. And then you can follow along with us uh, reading with your own eyes the very word of God. We remember, as we've been kind of absent for a couple of weeks here, we remember that as we come to chapter 4, that Job was suffering because he was the object of a great heavenly test that God was allowing to disprove the devil's accusation, both against God and against man, that men and women do not follow God. For who he is, they will not follow him only for the relationship, but that mankind, human beings like us, only follow God for the blessings. We do not care about the blessor. We care only about the blessings. And Satan's accusation against both God and the devil is that basically you have to keep these people liking you and loving you and obeying you and walking with you and walking by faith by constantly giving them perks. But if you take those perks away from them in terms of material wealth and even touch their health, then they will back away from a relationship with you and prove to all of the universe that no one follows you just for you and just for the relationship. That was the accusation that Satan had made, and God allowed Satan to put his uh, theory to the test through the life uh, of Job. And uh, God proved to the devil, he proved to the demonic realm, the angelic realm, mankind in general, through the faithfulness of Job, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Nothing moved him from his relationship with the Lord. And it proved the fact that he was in his relationship with God for the relationship and not for the benefits or the promises or the blessings that are found in the relationship. And so here was at least one man, Job, who was, uh, would follow God and worship and obey him strictly for the relationship. And this represented a great... A public humiliation 
for the devil because the entire angelic realm was watching this particular test. And in this humiliation of Satan was at the same time the glorifying of the beauty of man's faith in God. Job is in a a very, very difficult state. I won't recap the severity of his circumstances. But when three of his friends hear about the trouble that he's in, they come immediately in order to bring comfort to him. At least that's their intention, their goal of encouraging him in his suffering. And they sat silently with Job for seven days and uh, honoring the ancient custom of allowing the suffering person to break, be the first to break the silence uh, before they would speak. And in chapter 3, Job broke the silence and he began to pour out his heart in a great lament. And it's so important you think about the strength of this man, the strength of this man's faith in uh, the Lord. And yet when he opens up his mouth, the pain of the circumstance that's in this great lament pours forth. And he lamented or really cursed the day of his birth, we remember. He lamented the night of his conception. He wished that he had died during childbirth, he said, and he wished he had been stillborn or born dead. And it's just expressing the depth of his pain in the circumstance. And God allows Job, and and there's the record of Job chapter 3, and it's really very precious to understand it as it sits there. And because Job, as he's expressing this great lamentation, he is communicating that, yes, I have maintained my faith in God, but it does not mean that what I'm in the middle of is not very difficult and very painful. So difficult and so painful that I would love to escape it in a second in time through death, but only if God would take my life away from me. And sometimes when we watch men and women in the body of Christ hold up in a great trial and a great suffering and continue faithfully with the Lord because of the strength of their faith. And we know it's God's strength in their their life as well. But we can look at that and say, oh, this isn't really as hard on them as as, uh, I would think that it would be on them. We kind of minimize the depth of the difficulty of the trial because they're holding on to their faith. And Job teaches us that when we see people continue to walk with God, when all they have left is the relationship, nothing else, there are no other perks, no other reason for walking with God than the fact that he deserves our obedience and and our uh, faithfulness to him. But that whenever we see that, there is a great price that is being paid in order to uh, represent that in the situation. Now, Eliphaz, now that the silence has been broken, uh, one of the three, a man by the name of Eliphaz, he steps up and he's probably the oldest of, of Job's comforters and he begins to speak. I um, want to uh, lay down a little bit of a foundation because now in chapter 4 we begin this very long section all the way through chapter 31 of the book of Job. Uh, that uh, I want us to know a little bit about maybe what we can be looking for in terms of lessons before we uh, head into it. So now all the way through chapter 31, Job's friends and his comforters are going to attempt to solve the great mystery surrounding Job's trials. No, no human being understands the true reason. 
for the suffering that Job was going through. That, that, that revelation and that knowledge was limited to heaven itself. Nobody understood that. And they are going to miss the real reasons for Job's suffering by a million miles, but they're convinced that they're absolutely right because they thought they had God and they had suffering all figured out. And so their simple formula was this. We're going to hear them repeat it so often that by the time we get to chapter 31, you're either going to strangle me or you're going to want to go back in time to strangle them. But here's the formula, and the formula is that God allows suffering when there is hypocrisy or secret sin in a person's life. And they're going to repeat some variation of that over and over again, that nobody goes through the kind of suffering and the kind of difficulty that Job was going through unless they are a hypocrite, giving the appearance of being a godly person, but in secret, they're sinners. And that, that is their that's their explanation for, Paul, uh, for uh, Job's suffering. And we know, was that the explanation for Job's suffering? Absolutely uh, not. I think it's important for us to also realize that God is never, ever silent during, uh, you know, completely silent during times of trial and difficulty. He has told us all that we need to know to successfully navigate even a trial of this depth in his scriptures, the revelation uh, of his word. That's all that that's where we need to go is to the word of God in order to gain perspective, regain perspective, maintain perspective in the midst of great trial. So when the bottom falls out like it did in Job's life and something like that happens in our life or maybe something to a lesser measure, I mean, I think that Job, God allows what happens to Job here with the idea that uh, nothing else short of, of death can ever be as extreme as what, what he faced. So most of our trials will be less than his. And so what do we do when that hits? We go to the word of God for revelation. What does God tell us to do in that situation? We think Sometimes we think that because God hasn't given us a word of knowledge or a prophecy or the word of wisdom, that he's gone completely silent on us in the trial, and now we're being forced to walk by blind faith. That's not true at all. We have this amazing book that we can turn to, to understand what God wants us to know in trials, to go to First and Second Peter, to go to the book of James, to go uh, to the book of Job, for instance, to go to the book of Psalms and receive revelation uh, that God has for us. God can then add, if he desires, a word of wisdom or a word of knowledge or a prophecy or some kind of revelation to help us understand the bigger picture of what's going around, going on around our life if he chooses uh, to do that. But the fact of the matter is, is that we do not walk by explanation, but we walk by faith in God's word and in his promises. God has told us a lot about what we can know when we find ourselves in the middle of this kind of, of a situation. Now, this whole idea that Job's friends have, that all suffering and all catastrophe and all physical disease is caused by sin in the life of the person who's experienced the trial, uh, that isn't uh, just an ancient view of man and religious men. And these are all religious men that are speaking to Job. 
It isn't like, okay, this is 4,000 years ago, and that's a view that they had back then. How archaic, how primitive, you know, and, 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 but aren't we so glad that we're so much smarter today that none of us would think such a thing? It happens all the time today. I think about in Jesus' day, Jesus corrected the problem even among his own disciples. John chapter 9, Jesus passed by, we're told, and he saw a man who was blind from birth. And the disciples said said to him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? It was the religious teaching of the day by the rabbis that when a child was born with some deformity or some kind of, of blindness or, or imperfection, that it was either caused by uh, sin by the child in the womb, which they thought was possible, uh, or the sin of the parents. Now imagine the immense guilt that that would put upon a parent who uh, had a child who had what we would call special needs today. It would be a terrible thing to do. But that was the prevailing teaching of and view of religious people was that all of this is caused by somebody's sin. Jesus' answer was interesting. He said, neither this man nor his parents sinned. It's like this shot the clay, you know, he blows that whole, a whole, a whole generation, a whole world of Jews believe that about God and man. And Jesus takes it in one sentence, he just blows the whole thing up. He says, there's nothing true about that at all. He said, neither this man nor his parents sin, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. And that Jesus proceeded to heal him of his blindness. In Luke chapter 13, there's another incident that is fascinating, not just only in terms of of any kind of a physical situation we may be facing in our life. But what about accidents that occur in life? And we're told that there were present at that season some who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. They were offering sacrifices. Uh, Some kind of an incident occurred. Pilate sent in Roman soldiers and killed these Galileans in the midst of the sacrifices. And so it was a big uh, ugly mess and a terrible situation. So Jesus was informed about that, and his answer was interesting. He answered and he said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? Why would Jesus say that except that's what they were thinking? And that's what we think so often. No, I tell you, no, but unless you repent, and he takes and makes it a teachable moment, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And then he commented on another local situation. He said, or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them. So some kind of a collapsing of the tower of Siloam and a construction thing or whatever. 18 people were killed. And Jesus said, do you think that they were worse sinners than all other men who dwell in Jerusalem? He says, I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And this kind of a thing goes all the way into the body of Christ Even today, where when a tragedy hits another person's life, some terrible car accident or a plane goes down or some kind of what or medical diagnosis, 
And I don't say it's true of everyone, but I'll say that it creeps in. I would say the person that doesn't deal with this is probably a rare kind of person. There's that perverse kind of thought that can come into our mind and think, why did that happen to them? And the natural inclination is to move, to think there must have been something wrong with their life. There must be a reason that God will allow that to happen in their life and he doesn't allow it to happen uniformly in other people's lives. And there's that idea that I wonder what they were doing wrong, that such a thing could happen to them. And I mention all of this because it is it seems to be in us from Adam and Eve. And we really need to reject this natural tendency. And if the book of Job does nothing else, then cause us never for the rest of our life to view that kind of tragedy in another person's life in that way, then it will have accomplished something great in our life or to view our own lives in that way. Where a difficulty or a tragedy occurs, those of us who can have walked with the Lord for a long, long time. We know the word of God very, very well. We know God very, very well. We're not the old wise owl, but we know a few things, been around a little while. And then something can happen in our lives. And it's amazing how one of the first five thoughts we'll have is, I wonder what must be wrong with me that God would allow this to happen in my life. And we begin to think that it must be sin. There must be some unknown thing that I am doing that's grieving God, that such a thing would happen in my life. It's in us. And we don't need any help in believing that about ourselves and our circumstances. Job didn't. That was already in Job. A natural tendency of Job, just like it's already in us. He did not need Anyone to nurture that in him. And unfortunately, he got three plus one, four by the time we get to the end of it, that are all going to nurture that same thought in his mind. What in the world are you doing in secret that this kind of a thing would happen to you that isn't happening to any of us? And we already think it about ourselves. We don't need anybody else to encourage it in us. And, and that's what these guys are going to, to do. Now, in these chapters uh, 4 through 31, really 3 through 31, this, it, it gives us as Christians a tremendous and I think a very needed education on how to view suffering in the world and how not to minister to those who are suffering in this world. And it gives us... The vantage point of our learning is how not to do something. And so I love if I'm going to be put in a particular situation that I've never been in before. I like to read and I learn by reading and all. But I like to be with somebody else to walk through that situation with somebody else who knows what in the world they're doing. Learn by observing, watching and, and listening and all. And then to be introduced into that situation. And that's what we're allowed to do. We're allowed to watch this whole thing unfold. And we can't really learn anything by saying, ah, these guys were brilliant. They did one great thing after another. We look at these chapters and we think that, that this is one mistake after another. I don't want to learn by making the same mistakes. 
by the time we get, and sometimes you can look at the book of Job, and sometimes people in their devotional reading of the Bible all the way through in a year, and all they get to this section of Job, they read like five chapters and jump all the way to when God starts talking. They just can't take it anymore. And sometimes there's that temptation. No one should ever do that in their devotional life. I'm just kidding. Um, but there is a temptation, and we will face it ourselves in going through this. We will get into the passage tonight, by the way. But there is that temptation to look at it and think, well, why in the world didn't God just record like five chapters of this nonsense that the, and hurtful things that these men are saying to Job? Why does he have to give us like 28 chapters of this? And the idea is, is that after 28 chapters, long after we have cried uncle and wished to escape listening to what these men are saying, we are actually intended not to like these men. To not to like what we hear coming out of their mouth, how they are treating this man that is suffering, and to look at them chapter after chapter after chapter until we come to God and we plead with him and say, God, I beg you that if you ever introduce me into a situation like this, that I would never conduct myself in this way. I never want to be like these human beings. And it takes because this is so ingrained in us. It can't be erased in five chapters. That thing that's in us can't be smitten down in ten chapters. It takes 28 chapters to hammer that down in our lives so we realize I'm not going to give any credence to that tendency of my flesh to believe that all suffering must be the result of secret sin or hypocrisy in another person's life. I won't believe it about others. And I won't believe it about the circumstances of my own life. Now, let me allow me to make a, a couple of points, more points by way of introduction that when we're dealing with people who are in deep trial. And I, by the way, anything I say in the course of the teaching of the book of Job, I have violated in conversation. But but when dealing with people in deep trial, the old saying is, if you can't improve on silence, don't try. Don't try. And, and there's a lot to be said for that. There is nothing wrong with being just a quiet, supportive presence in another person's life when we don't know what in the world to say to them in the circumstances that they're, that they're in. Some people have a great gift for it. You throw them. I have a friend named Lee Shaw. And that guy, you can throw him into the biggest disaster in the whole wide world. Put him in that room, and it's just a gift from God. He'll tell you the very same thing. And he knows just the right thing to say. And he knows how to get people to open up and to begin to talk. And he just has a way. It's, it's phenomenal to watch. But not all of us have that kind of a gift. And so we don't oftentimes know what to say. But we feel like we ought to say something. I'm a Christian after all. And then we say some kind of awkward thing that doesn't necessarily help. If we don't know what to say and we can't improve on the silence, there's nothing wrong with being silent. All Job needed from his friends was just their love and their support. 
and someone just to listen to him while he's just trying to, just trying to sort out the magnitude of what's happened in his life. He just needed a few people to listen to him and continue to be his uh, friend. Now, each of these so-called friends of Job, they felt that Job's statements, and Job is going to say some wrong statements, but I would contend they really draw him into it. If they had just encouraged him in his faith in God and his relationship with God and the goodness of God, the love of God, I don't think he would have ever gone down the paths that he went down. But because they kept telling him, it's sin in your life, it's sin in your life, it's sin in your life, he begins to believe it's sin in his life. And then pretty soon he's upset with God because he doesn't know of any sin in any hypocrisy that he's committing secretly against God. So he's caught in this impossible place. This is happening because of sin in my life, but I don't know of any sin in my life, and God won't reveal the sin to me to bring me out of this trial. And that's the, the corner that they backed him into in, in, his, in his thinking here. And these men felt that they needed to defend God's reputation, even to the point of providing Job with an explanation for his suffering that really had no basis in reality. And I think, and this is very, very important, I don't want to lose you in the introduction. Stay with me. This can be the weakness of the kind of person who has a very, very high view of God and a very, very high view of God's word, which is wonderful in and of itself. But the person also lacks a compassion and a love for people. And more often than not, that person that has a very high love for God and respect for God, but a low love for his fellow human beings, he is probably not called by God uh, to speak for God in that kind of a circumstance. He should remain silent in the presence of people who are suffering. There's another kind of person who needs to be very, very careful in this kind of an environment. And... That is someone who is a serious student of the Bible, but who is uncomfortable with mystery. They feel they have to have an explanation for everything. And there are a lot of people in the body of Christ this way. There are whole denominations that are characterized by this kind of thing. They are not comfortable with mystery concerning God. They are not comfortable saying, I don't know. I don't know why. We'll just have to pray and ask the Lord and see if he wants to reveal uh, anything to us related to this. They do not like mystery. So they will take and reduce God and his ways down to a little formula, put them in a little box, put a little ribbon around and a bow on the top, even if they have to um, uh, mangle certain passages of Scripture to get God reduced to that formula. Uh, even if they have to uh, take and misrepresent entire sections of Scripture to do it, it is so important to them. They do not want to worship a God that they cannot understand. And so they will reduce them to these kind of formulas that when people suffer, it has to be because of sin in their own life. And that, that's how it, it, it works. And they reduce everything is that simple. It's that cut and dried. And, and it's, it's that clear. So they've got to have an answer for everything. Now, any time, and I've said this many times before, but never in the context of the book of Job and in the evening audience, I think any time you have the finite, that is us, 
in relationship with the infinite, that is God, well, then we have to get used to mystery. Uh, Anything that we know, the best that we know, we can only track out so far in our mind. And the knowledge of that knowledge of that situation goes infinitely beyond what we can understand. And there's so much that God knows and he understands that in our finiteness, we can't even process that. We can't even carry that. And so in the relationship with an infinite God, we do have to learn to accept mystery. As the old saying goes, if God were small enough to understand, he would be smaller than our minds. And if he's smaller than our minds, then he's smaller than us. And why would we worship something or someone that is smaller than us? So we either are going to have a God who is far greater than our understanding at times and as a result is worthy of our worship, or we're going to reduce him to a formula that's smaller than our own minds and not have a God that's worth worshiping at all. That's the choice that we face. And it's hard to believe, though people wouldn't put it in those kind of words, hard to believe that there are great numbers within the body of Christ who rather than deal with mystery, they will reduce God down to this thing that is smaller than them because that's a God that's safe for them. That's a God that doesn't require faith of them. They have an easy explanation for that kind of God. But God has revealed to us in his word, Isaiah 55, he said, My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, that's pretty high, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And so the old saying is, when we're faced with what we don't know or understand in the Christian life, we're to always fall back on what we do know. And I don't care who we are as Christians. We are going to face situations in our life where we are not going to understand what is going on. And there's no revelation related to the specifics of it. And so what do we do? When we're faced with what we don't know, we fall back on what we do know. That God loves me, that God cares about me, that God is with me, that God is going to take care of me. And we put our focus in that place and the clear revelation of Scripture while this bigger situation is unfolding uh, over time. Now, having said that about Job's comforters, I, I want to give them a little bit of credit where credit is due and that at least... What they had to say about Job, they said to his face and not behind his back. They didn't stay in their cities and then get in some kind of a coffee clatch and everybody saying, boy, I wonder what must be wrong with Job and his family and the sin. They must have just been so wicked behind closed doors for something like this to happen. And that kind of stuff goes on. And to their credit, they at least came and they spoke to him to his face about these things. Now, these discourses that we're going to be reading through now, uh, they're divided into uh, kind of a, a, a reoccurring uh, pattern in that Job will speak first 
and then one of his friends will then respond to what it is that he has spoken. Then he will respond to what they have said. And then another friend will jump in and take the conversation in his own direction. What you end up with here is it's, it's just ganging up on Job. It's three against one in, in the situation. It's very, very ugly and painful to watch. Chapter 4, verse 1. And then Eliphaz, the Temanite, he answered, And he said, if one attempts a word with you, will you become weary? So he recognizes that Job's been stretched by his circumstance, and he's wondering, are you going to bite my head off if I say anything about what it is that you've just said about wishing you were dead or had never been born or this uh, kind of thing? In other words, Job, don't get upset with me for saying what needs to be said here. He doesn't wait for Job to answer. He uh, goes on now and Uh, continues by saying, but who can withhold himself from speaking? And so when Eliphaz says this, he is revealing the fact that he is one of these guys that, that now feels that he has to defend God in the light of what Job has said. We never, ever need to defend God. God can, God can vaporize another human being in an instant. I don't need to defend him. I can give a reason for my faith in him. I can give a reason from the word of God to what's revealed there. But I do not have to defend uh, God. And so he, he feels that Job has misrepresented God in his lament. And so he's got to correct Job. And, and he considered Job's lament to be an attack upon the reputation of God. And now he feels like the biggest need is no longer, the biggest need is no longer to um, comfort Job. Now the biggest need, because of what Job has said, has now uh, is to defend God's reputation. And so he views Job now as a theological adversary. This is what I'm talking about, where someone has a lot of book knowledge or a lot of knowledge of the scriptures, a great respect and reverence for God, but they are very, very limited in their compassion upon people. This is the kind of man that he is. He's going to forget about Job. This is now a theological argument. Here's a man that's lost ten children. He's sitting in a dump. He's scraping worms and pus off of sores that cover him from head to toe with a pot sheared. And this guy's going to forget about the situation he's in and he's going to pick a theological argument with him. Where's his thinking? I'll tell you, it's in us. It's in a certain kind of us. And it's very ugly to watch. And it's intended to be ugly. So we do not repeat the same thing when we find ourselves brought into a situation where we're intended to bring comfort. And so he comes in, and this is the vantage point that he is, uh, is, is, um, is, is coming from. I'd put it this way. Uh, in the lesson that we learn from him here is that when we're ministering to people in great difficulty, there isn't a need to correct every single thing that they say that's wrong. In a, in a counseling session, a counselor sits down, someone comes in, and they just begin to pour out their heart. And they may do that for 45 minutes. And the counselor sits there and listens and listens and listens and listens. And that person, in the course of 45 minutes, may say 10 things that are completely wrong. 
about God, about life, about everything. And just maybe all wrong. But the counselor doesn't jump on every little thing or the person will never be allowed to paint the big picture of what they're in the middle of. So that the counselor, if he keeps his mouth shut, can then get the big picture and then discover what the big problem is here in the situation as opposed to what are the symptom problems that come out of the big problem. If I'm in a counseling session and I correct every wrong thing a person says the moment it comes out of their mouth, we will just deal with symptoms and nothingness related to their problem. They will never have an opportunity to get to their problem. And so we have to be willing to allow people to speak and to listen graciously and to listen lovingly to what they're saying and allow them to put this big picture together for us. And we can understand this is how they're seeing it. This is how they feel about it. And then once they're able to do that, now we can address it in the light of the word of God, dealing with the big problem that they have first and then moving to what are kind of symptoms that are just coming out of the larger, uh, larger problem uh, in, their, uh, in their life. Now, uh, Eliphaz goes on and he says, Surely you have instructed many. And Job had. He had instructed and helped many people in difficulty. And you have strengthened weak hands. And so he had. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling. And he had done that all of his life. And you have strengthened the feeble knees. Job had helped people in difficulty all of his life. But now it comes upon you and you're weary. It touches you and you're troubled. Oh, you can dish out the advice, but you can't take advice, can you? You've got all the great words to everyone when they're in their suffering. But now you're in the suffering and you want to whine and complain and wish you're dead. This guy's got to get to some kind of a counseling school, and he's just getting started. The idea is, you know, you can't even take your own medicine. You can dish it out, but you can't take it. I mean, this is, his words are like piercing. It is not your reverence, your confidence, and the integrity of your ways, your hope. Remember now, and here he comes to the cause of all of this is in his mind is iniquity in Job's life. Remember now, whoever perished being innocent or were uh, or where were the upright ever cut off, even as I have seen. Let's just stick with verse seven. Remember now, whoever perished being innocent or where have the upright ever been cut off? A classic case in history, the cross of Calvary. How many innocent Christians have been cut off and suffered terrible things because of their righteousness and their faithfulness to God? I mean, his theory here that difficulty only comes into the life of those who are unrighteous, it is so flawed you can drive a white freight liner through it. But he, he can't see. He's so determined that I want a God that I can fully understand, even if it's a wrong view of God. So all of history violates. Today, every, any generation of God's people violates what he is proposing here. He says, even as I have seen, as he refers to his own experience, those who plow iniquity 
and so trouble reap the same. Job, this is happening because of iniquity in your life, the fact that you've been reaping trouble. By the blast of God they perish, and by the breath of his anger they're consumed. The roaring of the lion, the voice of the fierce lion, the teeth of the young lions are broken. The old lion perishes for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness are scattered. And so here's the king of beasts, and if God can humble the king of beasts, then he can humble uh, an evil man. And so, Job, all of this is God's judgment uh, in your life. God is against you. Just what a man needs to hear at that moment in time. And now he's going to get all spiritual on us in uh, verse 12. And he, he gets mystical, I should say, mystical. He said, now a word was secretly brought to me, and my ear received a whisper of it. He's got an artistic side to him. In disquieting thoughts from the visions of the night when deep sleep falls upon men. I had a night revelation from God. Fear came upon me, and trembling I trembled, which made all my bones shake. And then a spirit passed before my face. The hair on my body stood up. This is where we get the saying, the hair on my, uh, you know, uh, hair stand on end. The hair on my body stood up as a result of this. And it stood, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before me. There was silence. And then I heard a voice saying, Can a mortal be more... Just think Pirates of the Caribbean. Can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can a man be more pure than his Maker? And so he seems to be saying that God has shown, was showing him by special revelation that Job, uh, that he was done all of this to Job because of pride in Job's life. And if he, that is God, puts no trust in his servants, if he charges his angels with air, how much more those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed before a moth or die like a moth, they are broken in pieces from morning till evening. They perish forever with no one regarding. Does not their own ex excellence give way, and they die even without wisdom. Now, this is very significant, again, as we want to be uh, used by God in situations and be an encouragement to people in the middle of great loss. And, and here, here is a, a great mm, instruction related to uh, the gifts of the Holy Spirit or speaking for God in a particular situation. So he's laying out his own kind of opinion about things. And then as he gets into verse 12, now he is declaring, I have received a word from God from heaven that this is the cause of your situation, that this is all a humbling by God because of your pride. Because of all of your wealth and all of your position and all of your reputation, you got lifted up in pride, thought you were bigger and better than God, and so God had to take you down a couple notches. One big problem with that, it wasn't true. It absolutely wasn't true. But someone is claiming that this is true in speaking in the name of God. What it teaches us is this. I believe in all of the gifts of the Holy Spirit for today. And I think that they need to be in operation on our lives anytime God wants to operate them in our lives. 
But when we're dealing with someone who is in a position of suffering, we need to be very careful that if we're going to speak for God and say, Here, thus saith the Lord about this situation or about you, that we really have heard from God and then to speak that. And again, when I am in contact with people that are in in, uh, suffering and in difficulty or I write a card or something like that or I'm going to make a phone call, I always stop and I ask and I say, Lord, is there anything you want me to speak? Is there any verse from your word that you want me to include in the card? I don't need to do it. I don't feel compelled to do it. But if there's something that would be a comfort to them, then would you give me that as a revelation? So I'm not putting down the use of spiritual gifts. They can be very powerful in the life of someone who's in suffering. But we have to make sure that we have truly heard from God. Otherwise, we're going to do great, great damage. It's a time to be extra, not to be flippant and casual with revelations from God and speaking them into a situation without realizing that if if I'm claiming that I'm speaking for God and I'm not speaking for God, but the people person believes that I'm speaking for God and it's wrong, then I'm sending them down uh, a terrible, uh, a terrible track and, and introducing a cause for uh, confusion and, and all that doesn't need to be there. Eliphaz then goes on in chapter five and he says, call out now. Is there anyone who will answer you? And to which of the holy ones will you turn? And the idea, you know, as he's speaking to Job here, is that uh, declaring to him that uh, he, he challenges Job to summon men or to summon angels, which are the reference to the holy ones, to disprove that sin is the cause of all suffering. Or he might be saying, uh, go ahead and cry out. Uh, to the angelic being or to anybody else that you want to pray to, but nobody's going to listen to you in this circumstance because of the sin in your life, which is it just would be a terrible, terrible thing to say to someone. Even prayer won't do you any good because of the, because of uh, your sin. And then he says, for wrath kills a foolish man and envy slays a simple one, accuses him of being foolish I've seen the foolish taking root, but suddenly I cursed his dwelling place. His sons were far from safety, and they were crushed in the gate, and there was no deliverer. In other words, he's saying to Job, the loss of your children is due to your own foolishness. And, and so the folly of, of following sin and Job in, in your life and, and seeking your own purposes under the influence of wrath and envy as opposed to God's ways and his purposes, then it has caused God to rise up and, and to destroy your children. It's all because of secret sin in your life, uh, Job. And, and then the loss of your property is the same thing. Because the hungry eat up his harvest, taking it even from the thorns, and a snare snatches their substance. For affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble spring from the earth. Yet man is born to trouble as the, fly, as the sparks fly upward. In other words, the problem with this world, Job, is not with the dirt. Uh, it's not with the mountains. It's not with the hills. The problems of this world is the sin of man who inhabits the world. And so he's coming back and pounding the same thing. And what is true of the 
whole world, Job, is true of your life as a microcosm. There is sin in your life. This kind of thing doesn't happen independent of sin. But as for me, if I were you, I would see God. Thank you very much. And to God, I would commit my cause. And who does who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number? He gives rain on the earth and he sends waters on the fields. And so he's calling on God. To, he's calling on Job to confess his sin to God, repent of his sin, get right with God. And then he starts to list all of the blessings of, of being right with God. He gives rain on the earth and he sends waters on the fields and he sets on high those who are lowly. And those who mourn are lifted to safely safety. He frustrates the devices of the crafty so that their hands cannot carry out their plans. He catches the wise in their own craftiness and the counsel of the cunning comes quickly upon them. They meet with darkness in the daytime and grope at noontime as in the night. But he saves the needy from the sword, from the mouth of the mighty and from their hand. And so the poor have hope and injustice shuts her mouth. Behold, happy is the man whom God corrects. So God is chastening you, Job. Therefore, do not despise the chastening of the Almighty. It all sounds great. It all sounds spiritual. There's just one real big problem with it. That is not what is happening in Job's life. He is not being chastened by God. And yet this guy's got it all wired and he's going all over the place, accusing Job of these things and horribly misrepresenting the Lord. For he bruises, again, the blessings of repentance, but he binds up, he wounds, but his hands make whole. And he shall deliver you in six troubles, yes, in seven, no evil shall touch you. In famine, you, he shall redeem you from death and in war from the power of the sword. You shall be hidden from the scourge of the tongue and you shall not be afraid of destruction when it comes. You shall laugh at destruction and famine and you shall not be afraid of the beasts of the earth. For you shall have a covenant with the stones of the field. In other words, the stones wouldn't uh, hinder him in his farming. And uh, all you got to do is go to Israel and know, wow, if you've got a covenant with the stones, you've got a good deal going if you're a farmer. There are a lot of stones there. For you shall have a covenant with the stones of the field, and the beasts of the field shall be at peace with you. And you shall know that your tent is in peace. You shall visit your dwelling and find nothing amiss. You shall know that your descendants shall be many and your offspring like the grass of the earth. Sorry about your kids, Job. You shall come to the grave at a full age as a sheaf of grain ripens in its season. Behold, we ha and so he gives them all. This is all is all waiting for you. If you'll just confess your sin, and repent, Job. And then he says he closes his remarks by saying, behold, this we have searched out. It is true. Hear it. And know for yourself just a picture of smugness. In other words, listen, I have laid the truth out to you. This is exactly what you're in the middle of. And if you're smart, you'll listen to me and understand that, that I have told you the truth. The problem is there's not a word of truth in the whole discourse that he lays out to Job. But he thinks uh, he thinks he has been uh, fair in, uh, in representing uh, the Lord. Job then answers, and he said, Oh, that my grief were fully weighed, and my calamity laid with it on the scales, for then it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. 
And so Job is just, he's, here the, this guy's just doing this whole theological thing with him and blah, 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 blah. And Job just comes back and he just says, listen, I'm just trying to tell you how hard this is, what I'm in the middle of. If you were to, t- there's nothing heavier than wet sand just about, certainly in the ancient world. So if you took the wet sand of an entire sea and put it on one side of the scale, and you put what I'm feeling, the suffering I'm feeling in the middle of the loss of my children, my family, my everything, and put it on the other side of the scale, my suffering would outweigh it. This is the degree of, of the calamity, the difficulty that's going on inside of me. He's just still trying to get them to understand. And he said, therefore, my words have been rash. You think I, in chapter 3 I'm talking about, I'm just saying stuff to say stuff or, or to disrespect God in some kind of way? I'm just sharing my heart. This is what I'm feeling. In, in the middle of this, and I mean, if, who, if you can't talk to your friends who are supposed to be godly friends in a trial, who can you talk to? So he says, therefore, my words have been rash. For the arrows of the Almighty are within me. God's made me uh, taking target practice on me. And my spirit drinks in their poison. He's not only shooting me with arrows, but he's shooting me with poison arrows, doubly deadly The terrors of God are arrayed against me. Now, this is so sad because Job is buying in to their argument. They have put him on a road of false understanding concerning God and concerning what's really happening in his life. And even just one of these three speaking, and they're all going to speak over and over again, they've already got him buying into the idea that he is a target of God because of his sin. And, and so now, on top of everything else, you, you cannot do anything more cruel to a child of God in a place of suffering than to remove their lone source of comfort, God, by intimating falsely that he is upset with them, with Job, when he isn't. Now you've taken, now you've taken, now his kids are gone. Now his wealth is gone. Everything is gone. His reputation is gone. Everything his whole life has stood for is gone. And now they're going to take God away from him as a comfort. And they've begun to be successful already. Does the wild donkey bray when it has grass? Does the ox low over its fodder? Donkeys and, and oxen, they don't uh, protest when, when they have enough food and they're satisfied. He's, he's laying the case that I'm complaining. My words are rash because there's a cause for my, I should say, lamentation. He said, can flavorless food be eaten without salt? Some of you love that verse. Or is there any taste in the white of an egg. My soul refuses to touch them. They are loathsome food to me. His trials took a great price upon his 
ability to eat and all and what he could stomach. Oh, that I might have my request that God would grant me the thing that I long for, that it would please God to crush me, that he would loose his hand and cut me off, that I would die, and then I would still have comfort, though in anguish I would exult. He will not spare, for I have not concealed the words of the Holy One. So he continues to wish for death. He has has absolutely no hope he's going to escape this trial or that better days are ahead for him. All he wants, again, you, you put yourself, if you've never been in that place, we can try and put ourselves in that place to where a person legitimately, not so it'll be a verse in the Bible someday, legitimately says, all, you want to know what I want for Christmas? All, or you want to know what I want to? All I want today is for God to kill me, to bring an end to my life. Now, God's not going to do that. And, of course, we can't take our own life. And there's a happy ending to all of this as well. And there's a divine purpose behind all of it, which is even more important. Job says, what strength do I have that I should hope? And what is my end that I should prolong my life? What am I, what's, there's nothing for me to live for. It's all gone. And is my strength the strength of stones or my flesh bronze? He's saying, I'm only flesh and blood. I'm not made of stone or rock or bronze. I'm, I'm just a man. I can only take so much. Is my help not within me? And is success driven from me? To him who is afflicted, kindness should be shown by his friend even though he forsakes the fear of the Almighty. Now he just gives a little counseling tip to his friends and gives it to us. He said, to him who's afflicted himself, kindness should be shown by his friend. That's all he's saying. That's all I want from you guys. I just want a little kindness. I don't want theological explanations. I don't want this. I don't want that. I just wanted a little bit of kindness and support from my friend. And he said, even though he forsakes the fear of the Almighty. Job isn't saying that he has forsaken the fear of the Almighty, but he said, even if someone does in the depth of a trial like this, they still need a friend. They don't need a theological argument. They don't need people to get angry at them and start yelling at them uh, uh, over uh, a misunderstanding. And it's a beautiful counsel, uh, again, from someone who is in the middle of it, And I'll tell you, when someone's in the middle of it and they say, listen, let me tell you how to help people in this kind of a situation, then it's very valuable. Verse 14, very priceless. He said, my brothers have dwelt deceitfully like a brook, like the streams of the brooks that pass away, which are dark because of the ice and into which the snow vanishes. When it's warm, they cease to flow. When it's hot, they vanish from their place. The paths of their ways turn aside. They go nowhere and perish. The caravans of Tima look. The travelers of Sheba hope for them, but they are disappointed because they were confident and they come there and are confused. And so Job is communicating that he's disappointed in the the refreshment or the comfort uh, or the encouragement that his friends had brought to him. And he uses imagery in the Middle East there. Uh, there are mountaintops. There is snow that, uh, that falls in certain places. That snow begins to melt uh, early in the spring, melts completely off, and it just fills the brooks or the wadis there with water. They're just rushing with water like crazy. But then when the summer comes 
And when these caravans uh, carrying goods would then go through that arid areas, by the time that they come to those brooks or those, those wadis, the water is long gone. So much water in the winter and the spring, but in the summer when you really needed it, it's all gone. And so Job is basically saying to them, listen, you guys were, I mean, they're fair weather friends. You guys have been great. I mean, you, you were my friends through all of the good years, all of the up years, all of the wonderful years, all the years. I didn't need anything from you. And then now when I need something from you, I can't get a trickle of anything out of you. In terms of compassion and in terms of 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 care here. And so when I needed you most uh, and uh, then uh, you were you vanished on me and now you are nothing for now. You are nothing. You see terror and are afraid. Now, that verse 21 is a fascinating verse, and it's a great insight uh, by uh, Job into what he is recognizing is happening here on, on behalf of his, his, uh, his friends. He says to them, he said, for now you are nothing. You see terror and are afraid. So why were these men so uptight with Job? Why were they so angry? Why were they so abrupt and, and defensive with with Job, and I think there's a hint of the answer in uh, Job's uh, words here. These three men were afraid that the same calamities would come on them. And so they, therefore, they had to defend their basic premise that God rewards the righteous and punishes the wicked. And is lo- because on the basis of that formula, all they have to do is continue to be righteous and nothing evil will happen to them in this life. That's why they are upset with Job because he is tipping the apple cart. He is disproving the source of comfort in their lives. And that is, if I remain righteous, I will never know a tragedy like this. And that's a lie. And it's false. But some people would rather believe a lie than to trust in the true and the living God to do what's right in our lives. And so Job realizes the reason you guys are so uptight is because my life is disproving your theological position that brings you comfort in the face of an uncertain world. And that's what was behind uh, all of, of their thinking. So when Job just continues to declare his innocence and his integrity and the fact that there is no secret sin in his life, every time he says that, it jars them into thinking, oh, no, then we are not safe from this kind of tragedy in our own righteous living. And they didn't want to hear it. They didn't want to believe that that could be a, possible, a possibility. They would rather believe, uh, believe a, a lie than, than to, uh, you know, face the, the reality of what life is like here on planet Earth. Job said, did I ever say bring something to me or offer a bribe for me from your wealth or deliver me from my enemy's hands or redeem me from the hand of oppressors? I never asked you to come and, and, and help me. And I certainly didn't ask you to come here and terrify me. He said, teach me and I'll hold my tongue. All right. You want me to not speak? You just 
tell me something and I'll stop talking. Cause me to understand wherein I have erred. Eliphaz, you're a great talker. That was a great religious speech that you made there. There was just one great omission from it. Can you please identify the single great sin that is secret in my life that is causing God to judge me in this way because I can't for the life of me uh, uh, discover it or, or recognize it in my own life? So you've got all of these words which are just all just religious words unless you can back them up by identifying a sin. How forceful are right words. But what does your arguing prove? Do you intend to rebuke my words and the speeches of a desperate men, uh, of a desperate one, uh, which are as wind? Yes, you overwhelm the fatherless. You undermine your friend. And now, therefore, be pleased to look at me, for I will never lie to your face. Yield now. Let there be no injustice. Yes, concede my righteousness still stands. Is there justice on my tongue? Cannot, ta- cannot my taste discern the unsavory? In other words, he could taste and, and uh, discern the malice that was behind this kind of grilling and accusation that they were uh, bringing against him here. And so Job uh, is, is now defending himself. He is, he is listening to all of the wrong things that, that he should be rejecting. He's allowing those to influence him. And then the things that he should be holding on, on to, he's rejecting. And so here he's just in this place of trying to defend himself. What a terrible thing for a person to be in this level of suffering and trial in their life and to be drawn into this kind of a horrible, horrible conversation. And yet it goes on all of the time. We'll ch- stop there at chapter 6. And then I hope that next week our introduction will be shorter and we'll just continue to plow through uh, this lengthy section that we've already introduced uh, this evening. Let's stand together. The worship team come forward. That'd be great. If you're here tonight and you are not a Christian, um, that's the most important decision you're going to make in life is what you do with Christ, because it not only affects the quality of your life today, but it affects your eternity. And sometimes people come in on a Sunday night. It's interesting to come in on a Sunday night when you don't know the Lord and we're going through some what are sometimes very obscure sections of Scripture or uh, tackling things that are not necessarily milk, but more of a meat variety. And somebody can sit in a room like this and say, what in the world uh, is this about for me tonight? Well, if if you're not saved, if it's about nothing else, it's about your need to be saved and to put your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins tonight. Nobody gets into heaven by uh, surviving or even enjoying a Bible study. It's a lot easier than that. We get into heaven by putting our faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. And there are going to be pastors up in front, also other men and women, who would love to pray with you to invite Jesus into your heart and begin a relationship.